0: House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres.
1: Now, joining me on the on the line is uh, author uh, David A. Harris, and we're going to be talking about his book, *A City Divided: Race, Fear, and the Law* in police confrontations Um, thank you for being here David
0: my pleasure Al good to be with you
1: so uh, first of all David uh, what led you to uh, write this book how did you get involved
0: well Al I moved to Pittsburgh in 2008 Uh, new to the city really getting to know it in my particular field I'm a law professor and I work a lot with police with district attorneys and judges And our police force at that time seemed to sort of be on the upswing. Things were going well, at least I thought. And then just two miles from where I lived, this terrible incident occurred. And when it burst into the media, it just shocked not just me, but everybody. And you sort of couldn't stop following it. Uh, And once once I began to uh, watch it carefully, at some point it just hit me, this is a story that's got to be told. But it had six more years to go, and I watched it all the way through, witnessed a lot of it, met many of the people involved in it, and I'm glad I've gotten a chance to tell this story because I think it has wide lessons for cities all over the country.
1: Okay. So now this this is the case about um, Jordan Miles. Now He was an 18, right. 18-year-old high school honor student. So what exactly do we know happened um, there's been all sorts of stories. So what, what is it that you found?
0: Well, Al, I think it's important actually uh, to say that while there was one terrible incident that lasted all of a couple of minutes, there are really two distinct versions of that story. From the point of view uh, of the police uh, who were involved in this, there were three undercover plainclothes officers and they were tasked with patrolling uh, uh... a neighborhood called homewood which is a particularly dangerous high crime area uh... looking for guns and drugs uh, not on a patrol beat but sort of a roving unit all unmarked and in plain clothes they say they saw uh, a man lurking up near a house and as they were driving down a street and then they turned their car around came out confronted the man uh... who stopped um, but very quickly they say they noticed he seemed to have a a weapon in his pocket, something very heavy. Uh, They could tell by the way he was standing and the way he touched that particular coat pocket. And uh, all of a sudden he started to run, but since it was winter, January here in Pittsburgh, he fell on the ice. They had said to him, we're police, 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 and uh, yet he still tried to get up. Um, And this started a fight on the ground, uh, and when that young man's hand went towards that pocket, they feared he was going for that gun and they were going to be shot. So they pretty much, you know, got on him and hit him until he gave it up and they put cuffs on him. Um, one of them was hurt in the fight. Uh, they searched him and they didn't find a gun. They found a bottle of Mountain Dew in that pocket. Um, and they tossed it away. They didn't find a gun anywhere and they sent him to the hospital, and then he was booked into the jail. From Jordan's point of view, the story has a lot of similarities, but crucial differences. He says he he left his house that night in Homewood, where he lived with his mother, to go around the block to his grandmother's house. He did this every night because his own bedroom was there. The house was kind of crowded at his mom's place. And he was no more than a few houses down the block when all of a sudden this dark-colored car sort of sped up and came right up on him. He had to jump back. And these three big men came boiling out of the car, screaming at him, where's the gun, where's the drugs, where's the money? They never said anything about being cops, according to Jordan. Uh, And he was terrified. He thought he was going to be robbed. You know, there was crime in his neighborhood. He tried to run away, but the the men were on him immediately. He started hitting him, beating him. Every time he tried to get his face out of the snow uh, so he could breathe, they hit him harder, and finally they hit him in the head, and he just was stunned, and he stopped. And it wasn't until later that he figured out that these men were police. And so you've got these two very different stories. But what they tell us together is actually more important. It's not just what happened in those moments. And there are very important differences. Did they identify themselves or not? Did he have a gun or not? Uh, but, you know, the common thing here is somehow this young man, uh, who was attending the premier arts academy of the public school system in Pittsburgh. Uh, he's an honor student. He plays the viola, for God's sake. He's never been in trouble. And somehow, four houses down from his mom's house, he ends up under a pile of police officers and ends up charged with felonies. And the, so the question really is not so much what happened. I mean, that's important, but Why? How did how could something like this happen? And it's the same kind of thing that happens in cities and towns all over the country with terrible frequency and often with really deadly results. I mean, the, the fortunate thing here is that the young man survived and his voice is in the story. That's often not the case. A lot of times, people end up dead in these situations. So this story really compelled me because it gives us a chance to dig into that question of why. Why does this keep happening, and is there any way that we can prevent some of these incidents?
1: Yeah, it's a strange. What, what do you think the, um, the whole um, regular occurrence of this type of behavior happening primarily in the U.S.? Um, is it, so what's the cause? Is it just purely race, or, or is, there, is there more to this story than that?
0: I think there's more to it. I think race is a big part of it. So let's just talk about that first because it's clearly the elephant in the room. You know, I haven't said in our conversation so far uh, that the young man was black and the three police officers were white, but I bet lots of people listening probably just assume that in their minds because that's the way that we're accustomed to seeing this sort of thing unfold. And it's true. Um, these situations are much more likely to happen when there is a mix of racial identities, when the, when the person in the police officer's vision is black. So let's talk about race first. I mean, for, for decades, the science has been indisputable uh, on this. The dominant stereotype of African Americans in America... And when I say a stereotype, I mean a stereotype held by not just white people, but black people too. The dominant stereotype when they see a black person is somebody who is dangerous and criminal and violent. Uh, and these things cut across age groups, and like I said, the science is indisputable. But if we look at more recent science, what we see is even more remarkable. Uh, social psychology has really taken the lead in this field, and what they've discovered, among other things, is that when people see a black person's face, when they just see a black person's face, um, it changes the visual system of the person who's viewing that black person. They became they become much more attuned to the possibility of a weapon, and they're actually able to pick out a weapon. In a drawing, much more readily. Uh, when they see a black person, uh, they immediately start to think about thoughts of crime and violence. Not a surprise with that older work, too. And when, when they are prompted, when people are prompted with thoughts about crime, with statements about crime, their eyes automatically move to, to, uh, uh pictures and visions of black people in an image. Uh, the the work the people who did this remarkable work say that race acts as a visual tuning system in the human brain in the United States. You 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 talk about other work too, and it gets even more remarkable um, when people and I say all people, not just white people, when they view uh, young people, but black young people they automatically overestimate their age and physical size. That is, when they see pictures of young black kids, they will overestimate how old they are, how big they are, how muscular they are, and how dangerous they are. And this goes across a number of different studies over a lot of time. So for one example, uh, Tamir Rice, that 12-year-old kid who was killed by police in Cleveland on a playground when he had a toy gun, he's 12 years old. Um, and the police reports on the scene uh, counted him as 18 years old and 185 pounds, both gross overestimates. So that's just a sample of what I mean when I say that race is really one of the chief causes here. It, it intertwines... With the poison of fear. And fear, Al, is a big component of how these things happen. Could I talk about that?
1: Sure. Um, I, before you get into the fear, I was going to say: Of course. Where does that come from, Bud? Um, my, my personal experience is having uh, an American mother and a Canadian father, and uh, living in both, but primarily when I was young, I just lived in Canada. And of course, being in the 60s, we had two television channels. Um, so to me, um, a black person was Bill Cosby. Yes, but I mean that's all I saw on my TV, and uh-huh. I wasn't exposed until I was moved to the states. But where, so where does that come from? Where someone sees a black person and they're thinking, "Oh, crime, gun, older than me, like older than you think." You know, where, right? Where does that come? Like, is it the, is it the TV shows we're watching? Is it the news? Is it Um, like, do you know where that comes from?
0: Yes. Yes. I mean, broadly speaking, it comes from the entire culture. News, entertainment, things we read, things we hear. Um, One of the other things that I do uh, in my professional life is I teach uh, groups of police officers, lawyers, judges, uh, community people about what's called implicit bias, this sort of uh, unconscious bias that uh, most people harbor and one of the one of the chief lessons of that work has been that this uh, set of beliefs and stereotypes comes really to us when we're very young it comes from all of our caregivers they could be our parents they could be babysitters our teachers our friends but then the broader culture as well It's not that we realize we're giving these lessons to each other, but we're passing on things that we might not even be aware of in how we react to people. I mean, you've probably uh, uh, been in a situation where maybe you've seen or been a part of a group of people uh, walking down the street and a black man or several black men are walking towards you and you, you might notice how all of a sudden a person will clutch her purse very tightly or cross the street you might have a reason to cross the street but those kind of unconscious reactions are examples of how this is so pervasive that it affects even the smallest behaviors and you know if you look at entertainment uh, if you look uh, at uh, whether it's comedy or drama uh, if you look at the music business if you look at any local television news station I mean I used to do this little experiment with people I would talk to uh, I would say, you know, uh, put a blindfold on in front of a map of the United States, throw a dart at it, and the nearest city, just go out, buy an airline ticket, fly to that city, check into the airport motel, and flip on the TV for the 6 o'clock local news. I don't care where you are, the first three stories will be about crime, and they're very likely to have images of black people. That's how news works and sells. And it isn't that those crimes don't exist. I'm not saying that. They're not making them up. But usually the images aren't even necessary to the story. And when we see those kinds of things over and over, we see black people presented that way, whether in news or entertainment or whatever, and very few positive images, well, the result is what we have now.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say I do notice that uh, you know if you look at uh, uh, media and you look at something like a headline, you know, a, a white caught shoots black man, um, rather than yeah. you, you go to you go to Canada, you see that it's like RCMP in, involved in shooting of suspect, like yeah. it's a totally different way of headlining something. Um, Absolutely. It doesn't even present race or where the people are from or anything. It just it, but in the US it's it's automatically white black.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the way that we look at the world here because of our history. Wow.
1: So now you were going to talk about what? Fear?
0: Yes, because fear is really the toxic twin of race in these situations. You put these two things together and you get a really, really dangerous mixture. Fear, I would say, you have to look at from both sides of any police encounter, both the police side and the citizen or civilian side. But let's take the police side first, and and I want to be clear here. I am not saying that police aren't brave. They are. Police officers take a lot of risks that you and I don't. They are the ones that President Obama would say, and say police officers are the ones who run toward the danger when the rest of us would run away. They're brave and courageous. And I know that, you know, fear is sort of part of the job, but yet they manage to be brave. I'm not taking anything away from that by what I'm about to say. But the fact that people act bravely doesn't mean that fear isn't still present. And fear is very much present in the police job, but what's happened over the last 20 to 30 years is that the culture and training for police officers has done things that have amped up the fear that police officers feel on the job? How's it done that? Well, number one, a lot of police training stresses that every encounter with a civilian, I mean every encounter, uh, is likely or it's possible to end up uh, in a deadly, uh, um, a lethal way. In other words, every time you approach a civilian, whether it's in a traffic stop or talking to one on the street, you must always uh, um, uh, have in mind that this could turn deadly in a heartbeat and be ready for it. Uh, and, you know, as one of the officers involved in this particular case I wrote about said, uh, I assume that everybody I encounter is armed and dangerous until proven otherwise. And that's the, that's the mindset for a lot of officers. Uh, and that's, I mean, it's just fundamentally untrue. It's not that some people, a few people, aren't like that, uh, but it's so few, yet officers are trained to expect it all the time. And the reaction to that has been this sort of what we call the warrior mindset, the idea that in order to overcome that kind of terrible situation, where uh, predatory, deadly evil is everywhere, you've got to become this, uh, the model is the sheepdog. There's, there's a lot of training out there about warrior ethos and being a sheepdog. The wolves are everywhere. They want to pick off everybody in the flock. Most of us are just sheep, and the police are the sheepdogs Uh, fending off the wolves, and so to be a warrior is to be ready to use what is called righteous violence at any moment to fend off the ever-present deadly evil, and that's just not how the world actually is, and it puts a dangerous frame of mind around policing. When, When you talk about police as warriors, I get that they get something out of that. They're comrades. And, and they feel like you know maybe it's a war zone out there, that would be the expression. But it, uh, civil policing is not war. And can, you can't think of it that way because you will have casualties and collateral damage, and it will be acceptable. We just can't do policing like that. In addition to that, uh, the police training feeds both cadets and uh, people at the veterans level in their in-service training A constant stream of training videos, and a lot of these videos are taken from police cars and police cameras that capture terrible incidents of violence directed at police. And so cadets are being shown this sort of canon of, of, of videotapes of police officers being murdered and shot and the shock value is sort of one of the things that police trainers are after. They want to show the officers, well, you better be on your guard, right? Uh, now, now this stuff can have a good purpose. I mean, don't make these tactical mistakes. But when they get shown these things over and over and different ones, and, of course, they're on the Internet, too, why wouldn't you think the whole world is after you? Uh, and, and, you know, we all know, of course, that in this era, and even before, if there's, say, 200 of these videos floating around that constantly get used in police training, and, and they get used over and over and over everywhere, if there's 200 of them, for every one of them, there's probably a million of things going just fine, you know, of police encounters and traffic stops and so forth, the, you know, the civilian answers the question and walks away or gets the ticket and drives away, or the police officer manages to calm the person down, but they don't show those in training. No. And I guess the, the third thing I would say on this point of fear for police uh, is guns. Uh, it's just not as true in other countries, uh, but in the United States, police officers have to think about the presence of guns every time they encounter a civilian. And that's real. That can't be wished away. That's not a matter of, how we train—that's that's reality for police. So police are facing a situation where there's a lot of fear, but it's all amped up, sometimes unnecessarily. You for know, civilians, it's different. Go ahead, please.
1: I was going to say Go we have Norm, Norm Stampler, the now retired uh, Seattle police. Oh yes, yeah, I've read
0: his book. He's good. Yeah,
1: yeah, he's good, and and you know he he really emphasized that a big problem as well was a lot of his uh, officers just didn't have the training.
0: Yes, they yes. didn't have they That's didn't have true.
1: enough training. It was way too yes. short, and and yeah. of course, being a new officer, you're always put in the worst part of town, and uh, you're from some little town um, somewhere in the Midwest, and you're totally scared.
0: Right, you have no familiarity with these kind of settings, with with people who look like this or act like this. So why wouldn't you be scared? And all of this contributes to that overwhelming sense of fear, which you have to counter by sort of being a soldier, being hard, being a warrior. And that just that, that doesn't lead to a good place.
1: So, so what do you think, um, like in that particular case um, here with Jordan Miles, now if I understand right, he, um, he had nothing in his blood, so he wasn't drinking or he was doing no nope. drugs. And, nope. um, and he had no gun, like you said. So um, now those officers were, were not charged, right? They, the charges were dropped.
0: That's right. Uh, the first thing to happen in the case is uh, Jordan faced some very serious felony charges, but a judge threw them out when he heard the police testimony. The officers were first suspended, uh, and then investigated, first by the feds, and then by the state district attorney, and also internally by the internal affairs unit we have here in Pittsburgh. And they were not charged by the federal government or the state's attorney, the district attorney, excuse me, Uh, with any crimes, and they were not disciplined at all. There was no internal discipline either, so they all just went back to work.
1: Mm. So in in essence, at at the end of the day, um, everything goes on normal, and nobody really has a, a real conversation about the issue at hand.
0: Well, yeah, that's true, and in this case, the only opportunity for that was uh, a a civil lawsuit that Jordan brought in federal court to assert that the police had done wrong. And it went through two full trials. Um, The first case ended without any major verdict, and then it went back through another full trial, and we got a split verdict out of it. On the claim of false arrest, the jury decided for Jordan Awarded him one hundred and twenty thousand dollars in damages, but on the claim of excessive force, and he's beaten pretty badly. Um, they uh, they sided with the police and gave the police that, and people were just completely confused by this. Wait, if the arrest is false, how was any force not excessive? But if the force was excessive, wasn't the arrest okay too? And and, and it almost went for a third trial before the city settled. Um, with Jordan for just about the same amount of money, just a little bit more. So in the end, it was very unsatisfactory. Uh, none of the legal processes seemed to bring any real measure of justice. The only person who found any solace in it, I have to say, was Jordan himself. After that second trial, he uh, he put out a statement through his family that basically said, uh, all I ever really wanted was was for somebody to say that the police did something wrong to me and we sort of got that today by this split verdict and he said you know i just want to go on with my life but it was very unsatisfactory and left the city you know just as divided as it had been in the beginning because after after the pictures of jordan's uh, uh, injured face got into the media the city really split in half and uh, you know people still talk about this case today
1: so so why do you think the the, the direct split you know, where, where you take sides, it's automatically, okay, well, the police are right, doesn't matter what you say, They're, that's just kind of the thought, or, or, or the victim, or as we say, Jordan Miles in this case, was right and the police were wrong, like, why is there such a direct split? Why can't we just try to assess the evidence and figure where things went wrong rather than placing blame?
0: Well, that's a great question, Alan. And I, I think the instinct to want to find fault and point a finger and say it was it was this person's fault is very strong for most people. And when you feel uh, perhaps threatened by one side or the other, so to speak, um, it's easy to see how uh, you might want to point the finger at one side or the other. Um, for African-Americans in Pittsburgh, Jordan's incident in his case was not the first one like it, not by any means. There's a long history of incidents like this in Pittsburgh involving African-Americans and police in Pittsburgh, um, and uh, his was just the latest. And so they were, you know, they saw this through the eyes of all those incidents in the past and how the police hadn't really changed even after them. For people who were not just police officers but supporters of police officers um, uh, or or who were inclined to see the world as, uh, you know, the black people who complain, uh, they're either criminals or they're just trying to get out of responsibility and that kid shouldn't have run, um, well, you know, they have another way of viewing the world. One of the reasons that I think fear is such an important ingredient for understanding why these things happen is because you know if if you if you really listen to black americans talk about their experience with the justice system with the police what they're basically telling you and and i have this in the book is a quote from the writer nicole hannah jones uh... she says you know basically what i'm saying is we grew up in totally different countries their experience is so different with police and the justice system from white americans and mainstream americans that it's really almost a different reality. That's why a city can really split. That's why one incident can be seen in two completely different ways with a willingness to believe one side and not the other. Um, You know, for me, as an academic, I want to find the root causes so I can uh, talk about how to prevent this in the future. But lots of people, it was just a spark for existing grievances and anger. And it was very unfortunate that the court cases came out the way they did.
1: So, at, at this point now, so after all said and done, um, have we really achieved anything? Have we, you know, I mean, Jordan Miles has got a little bit of money, but it took years, and um, the police officers involved, nothing really happened to them um so at the the end of the day now when we look back have we moved forward with this problem
0: well i think you know in in pittsburgh itself it's a mixed bag there have been there have been real signs of improvement after jordan's case uh happened um we had uh, an outside police chief here for the first time in I don't know, 150 years. I think I was told, and he made some substantial changes, especially in uh, the ways that the police department related to African Americans in their community. Um, and his successor, who is not an outsider, has really kind of doubled down on a lot of that. But there have still continued to be bad incidents, some like Jordan's, and you know, a couple even worse, actually. Um, But there are lessons that we can take out of Jordan's case, both from Pittsburgh and from elsewhere, that I think can help us, not just in Pittsburgh, but in lots of cities and towns across the country, to do better and avoid these things. Uh, One thing Pittsburgh did uh, and was the initiative of one particular commander uh, here, um, who was working very hard to improve relationships uh, with uh, African-American communities, uh is he cons- he put together a program where uh a number of his officers under his command uh all volunteers would come together once a week uh with a group of young folks from various high schools uh these were groups of you know 10 15 on one side 10 15 on the other they would eat lunch together they would get to know each other they would do some scenario based training in which the, the young people would take the police officer roles and vice versa. They interviewed each other. Um, and, you know, at the end of these sessions, I mean, it, it isn't as if anybody was fundamentally changed, I don't think. And I, was, I got to sit in a number of them. I watched this. They got to know each other. They got to know each other as people. They got to become familiar with the fact that just, to, you know, uh, for police officers, just because this is a kid who wears a hoodie doesn't mean he's a bad kid. And actually, he's a kind of a neat kid. Um, and for the students, it was, you know, well, these police officers, they have interesting stories. They're just people. They're not just the uniform. If you can extend something like that, uh, scale it up, make it pervasive across the city, the relationships are key to the success, not just of, of of avoiding these kind of catastrophes, but also to crime fighting, because we have to do that together. So that's one lesson I would pull out of something good that's happened in pittsburgh that could be imitated elsewhere um there are others too uh we've got to fight back on urban violence and guns uh we have to have more transparency and accountability from policing um and we have to move away from that warrior outlook uh towards the um towards a guardian outlook um Uh, One of the things uh, in the President's Task Force on 21st Century Policing, which produced an excellent report back in 2015, that was recommendation number one. Move away from that warrior thinking and think of yourself as a guardian of peace and good order. Uh, And that's actually being done in some police departments. One of them, in Washington State, uh, really stands out.
1: Yeah, yeah, good state. So uh, that's the basic in preventing the tragedy in the future then, is, is better relationships.
0: Well, that's, that's got to be one of the fundamental pieces of it, because when people have no relationships, they can't trust each other. Uh, trust is fundamental to successful policing. You can't have policing uh, in, in, in the sense of an occupying army. There has to be work together. I mean, that's one of the foundation stones of what's always called community policing. Sometimes it's done well, sometimes it's PR. But if you want to have community policing that works, that improves the community, there has to be a relationship of trust between the police and those they serve. If you don't have relationships, and it sounds awful soft, I know, but you don't have relationships, uh, police officers are doing it on their own. They're just in there, they're called when there's, you know, when, when, when it can't be avoided. Uh, instead, if the community of police work together they can they can cur- construct together a good place to live and work and that requires that relationship of trust
1: so uh, now someone comes out and uh, picks up your book city divided um, mm-hmm. What is it that you want them to come away with after they've read
0: it? Well, I want them to read the story what happened how it how it happened to this young man who Uh, you know, really was a, a, not a troublemaker, nothing. How it happened to him, and he didn't ask for it. I want them to read it all the way through and to see how the whole case played out. And I think it's a compelling story because it teaches us, uh, that we have to go beyond simply, uh, deciding which side we're on. And deciding who we want to blame, we have to look for solutions that address the greater problem. We have to build those relationships. We have got to work on violence in cities together. We have to uh, work to have the kind of policing we all want, uh, rather than just accept it. Um, I think all those lessons are there. And if uh, you know, if this story and that book can help people understand that, I'll feel good about it.
1: Yeah, it's an important work. You know, it's amazing that in 1968, I was in first grade, I was learning the lesson, you can't judge a book by the, its cover, and we're still dealing with that issue now in
0: 2020. Yeah, it is amazing, isn't it? Yeah. And,
1: you know, um, it's just shocking. Um, now, do you actually have a website or a place that people can come find other works or this work or anything else? And maybe Absolutely.
0: Can... Okay, yes. what would that be? Uh, it, they can go to acitydivided.com that's all one word acitydivided.com they can also go to the University of Pittsburgh Law School website to find more about me just click on faculty um, and uh, they can listen to my podcast uh, which is called Criminal Injustice and we cover all of the issues uh, in the criminal law and criminal justice sphere everything from corrections to policing, to prosecution, uh, everything under the sun, and I've been doing it for four years, and they can find that at criminalinjusticepodcast.com.
1: Well, fantastic. You know, we're going to have that linked up. We'll put your um, podcast link on our website as well. Wonderful. So people listening can just do one click and and find you and find the book and and, uh, maybe uh, help contribute. uh, I
0: appreciate that. Thank you, Al.
1: Thank you. Um, Again, now the book we're talking about is A City Divided, Race, Fear, and the Law in Police Confrontations. Um, Our guest has been the author, David A. Harris.
0: Thank you for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts,